the internet lied to me once again. Oh, the internet. You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The APN is currently looking for network sponsors. Hear your company right here at the beginning of the show in over 60 episodes a month on 18 different shows and reach 70,000 subscribers. Contact the APN via chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. That's chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com to sponsor the only archaeology education and outreach podcast network. Ancient tools and burials, plants and seeds, Neanderthals. All these things we make no apology for the study of archaeology. But we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't. Do Welcome to the Archaeological Fantasies Podcast, Episode 75. I'm your host, Sarah, with my co hosts today, Ken Bader and Jeb Carr. And today we're talking about various laws that affect the field of archaeology focusing mainly on the Antiquities Act and the recent executive order that looks at reevaluating various national monuments, including Bears Ears. Get ready to think critically. You will see are a staple of archaeology, but we don't do dinosaurs, no we don't do dinosaurs, no we don't do Hey everyone, and welcome to the Archaeological Fantasies Podcast. I am your host, Sarah, and I am joined today with my co-hosts, Ken Fader and Jeb Card. How's it going, guys? It's going. It is going. It has been a week. Absolutely. Something's going. So, before we do anything, can we just acknowledge how much shit has happened in the last two weeks as far as archaeology is concerned? Like, so much weird crap in the news? Well, let's see. We found we found new hominins in North America. We learned that there is a monument in Turkey that says we're all going to die. And um, and then another thing. What was the other thing? Oh, so, uh, not... Well, yeah, this has been the last couple of weeks. So, there was an executive order that... Uh, President Donald Trump signed. President Donald Trump. You may not like it, but that's what we have to deal with. Accepting reality is the first step to dealing with reality. <laughs> anyway. There you go. I don't know how to say that in Russian, though. The Great Orange Menace signed a presidential <laughs> executive order on the review of designations under the Antiquities Act. And I'm not going to read the entire act to you, but I will link to it in the show notes. I promise. Yeah, there's, there's no reason. But it's on, it's on whitehouse.gov. It's literally the... Mm-hmm. Just a review by the authority vested in me, designations, and so on. So you've probably heard about this. It's specifically targeting certain things that have been... It's targeting certain national monuments that have been created by the past presidents. And it includes pretty much anything created by the last two Democratic presidents. It's and, and, and Bush the second. And, and Bush the second. Yeah. And it's... Mm-hmm. It's using the Antiquities Act to target these uh, national monuments. And it's important that we understand what the Antiquities Act is specifically so that we understand why this EO is unnecessary and why this EO probably isn't going to go anywhere, much like many of the EOs that he has signed. Uh, many, we'll see. many. Let's, yeah, let's see on that one. Yeah, I, I'm going to apologize. This is like, politics is a super hot button for me, so I'm going to try to keep my snark <laughs> to a minimum, but yeah. If you can't tell which side I lean on by now, I you're not paying attention. I am more alarmist. I, I actually do suspect this may go farther than... Jeb is much more of an alarmist than I am. I, I, I tend to not get too worked up over over it, but I have been proven wrong consistently since this election. So certainly, there is a, a, a threat that's being posed to many of our important national monuments. And we, it's the I think it's certainly within the purview of this show to look at 
various misleading statements, mis yes. misrepresentations of what the law actually says and what it allows presidents to do, that at least, and we're not, I, I'm trying to be non-political here, but simply saying, hey, listen, you've got to read the American Antiquities Act short act to see exactly it's a, it's a brand new act, right? Like Barack Hussein Obama put this act in play, right, Ken? And that's, that's, you know, there, there is the thing. If you were to read so many of the accounts, both online and in, in journal, the, the newspapers, it sounds like this is some new thing that the last moment Obama, out of nowhere, decided that he was going to name some national monuments just, just to bother people. Right. In fact, the act on which Obama uh, was able to base his his power to do this was passed in June of 1908. Uh, 1906. I'm sorry. It's the American Antiquities Act. And lest you think, lest you think this is some liberal democratic ploy to take ownership of property, the guiding force behind this act and the person who named the first, I think, 17 national monuments was Teddy Roosevelt, uh, yep. who is not generally thought of as a liberal, progressive, communist <laughs> Democrat. I still like Teddy Roosevelt. He's one of my favorite. He presidents. is, after all, a Republican. Okay, to be fair, no, 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 no. Roosevelt was a Republican before they went crazy. Before they went crazy. No, well, Roosevelt was a Republican in the sort of post-Civil War party right? of Lincoln Republican. Yes. yes. Mm -hmm. And we are not and, going to get into a political history of the United States, but I hear what you're saying. And and Roosevelt was a conservative. When conservative meant he was all about conservation. Yes. maintaining maintaining the the wilderness of the of of the United States maintaining conserving um historical sites that's that's what he meant when he talked about being a conservative. So Ken, what what laws about, so what we're going to do in this episode, we're going to talk about the Antiquities Act. We're going to begin, I think we're going to end with it, but we actually thought it'd be a good idea to talk about a number of the different laws that sure. are, uh, affect America and America's relationship with other nations involving archaeology. And there's tons of laws in different nations. We're going to focus. We're all three Americans. While we do talk about other places, that is where our focus. So Ken, what laws were there on the books for the United States about protecting important archaeological resources before the Antiquities Act. I don't, um, there really was virtually there were, nothing. There were none. There, there were none. none. Yeah, and here, a, here's the a trick question. That happens. <laughs> yeah, here's the thing that happens is that the, we, there are the, the federal lands are located all across the United States. These are lands within individual states owned by the federal government. That right now today, the, the percentages are very, very widely. In my state of Connecticut, the federal government owns and administers 0.3% of all of the lands here. In Nevada, it's 84.9%. In Utah, it's 64.9%. In Alaska, it's 61.2%. What that means is the federal government is by law responsible for protecting, preserving those lands. And folks who are in the business of protecting and preserving those lands in 1906 had a problem, which was well, we, we know we should be protecting things, but we don't even know, we don't have a law that specifically says we are allowed to arrest people for digging up archaeological sites. Well, so, one, of the, one of the problems they had, his name was, was Richard Wetherill. Yes. Do you, do you want to talk about him? Richard Wetherill, the Wetherills were the folks who, who effectively took control of Mesa Verde. The, um, the major Mesa 
on which a lot of the cliff dwellings are located is and, Weather and Pueblo Mesa. Benito. And Pueblo Benito. Right. So and these guys looked at these sites as a way they were they were businessmen and they wanted to market these sites and have tourists come and dig bring artifacts home with you. Yeah, there were expeditions. I mean, things were being shipped to the east in like train cars in large quantities, yes. both ethnographic things like people paying pennies on the dollar for, for Navajo woven rugs and modern pottery. Um, the Weatherall brothers, on the one hand, they were cowboys to some degree. I mean, Richard yes. Weatherall ends up getting killed in, there was a guy that he owed money over a horse or something and he gets shot to death. He camped in Pueblo Bonito at one point in Chaco Canyon, the, the, the huge gray house in the center of the Chaco phenomenon um and yeah, one of his brothers, he did archaeology at Harvard. He was actually the roommate of Sylvanus Griswold Morley, the spy master and sort of founder in many ways of Maya archaeology. But yeah, they, Dad, were, they Dad, were basically helping. Yes. We did not have spies in archaeology. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're, I think you just said all the archaeologists were spies. No, 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 just, no. No spies. You know, I, There's no spying in archaeology. If I remember Big stay on the eyes pay? Is that what you're <laughs> yes. saying? If I remember correctly, Weatherill is buried at Chaco Canyon. There's a gravestone marking his burial right back behind Pueblo Benito. Wow. I am, oh. I've, I've got to look through and see if I have that photograph, but I'm almost positive of that. That's pretty cool. But never, so the, the deal here is the government realizes we need something explicit. We need something specific on the books to protect those places. And the, the Antiquities Act is really short. I will, yeah. ver- I'm not going to read the whole thing, but the first part, uh, be it enacted that the, the, the Senate and House of Representatives of the United States of America in Congress assembled that any person who shall appropriate, excavate, injure, or destroy any historic or prehistoric ruin or monument or any object of antiquity situated on lands owned or controlled by the government of the United States without the permission of the secretary of the department of the government having jurisdiction over the lands on which said antiquities are situated shall upon conviction be fined in a sum of not more than $500 or be imprisoned for a period of not more than 90 days or shall suffer both fine and imprisonment in the discretion of the court. So here we have for the first time in America, a recognition that, you know what, we, the federal government, we own a lot of land and it's our job to protect and preserve that land. We administer those properties and on those properties, there may be historic and prehistoric sites, ruins, uh, things of value, scientific value. Um, and we are we are, are now saying it is illegal. We are going to arrest you if you without the proper permission as an arch, you know, if you if you obviously if you submitted a proposal to dig these sites and there's yeah, get a permit recognition that these things belong to the federal yeah. government. Um, if you otherwise we're going to arrest you and we, we'll find you and put you in jail. Now and we're going to come was, back to we're going to come back to some of the misconceptions about that. I just I just want to get the law out there. Right, and but one of the important parts of the law that we're kind of glazing over, I feel like anyway, is that the laws were put the law was put into place not specifically but with in mind protecting Native American, uh, Paleolithic and Native American ancestral oh, sure. spaces. And this becomes important later, and we'll get to it as we go. But on top of preserving natural beauty and natural resources, which, surprise, surprise, people, we need to protect those too. It was also there to protect what we what we as a country were recognizing was the history of the Native peoples that we kind of came oh, in sure. and worked really sure. hard I mean, to wipe that, out. That first part of the law specifically talks about prehistoric ruins. Right. Yeah. It's, the, it's the second part. There's a, there's a, there's a paragraph, a second paragraph. Mm-hmm that we're actually going to be focusing on, I think, a little bit more today. And that that paragraph, and again, I will read only snippets of it, 
that the president of the United States is hereby authorized in his discretion mm-hmm. to declare by public proclamation historic landmarks, historic and prehistoric structures, and other objects of historic or scientific interest that are situated upon the lands owned or controlled by the government of the United States to be national monuments. Right. That's where that word turns up. And may reserve, the president at his discretion, may reserve as a part thereof parcels of land, the limits of which in all cases shall be confined to the smallest area. That last sentence is one that people are bringing up now to, it will to come. question Right, yeah. exactly. And we the, will come back. Size. It's the smallest area that can that can uh, reasonably right. be uh, managed, I think, is the way the wording is. So it's not just right. the smallest area. It's the smallest area that you could reasonably put a budget and a crew of people together for to maintain. Which right. The specific wording is the limits of which in all cases shall be confined to the smallest area. Okay. So it's how it's interpreted after that. Yeah. T- Teddy Roosevelt named 19 national monuments using that law. In fact, the, the second one is uh, – the third one, I'm sorry, is Montezuma Castle, which is a cliff dwelling in Arizona. The, yeah. the, fir- the very first one to show how this law applied to both natural and historical resources. Yeah, that's not the, a new thing. And again, we'll, we'll talk more about that. Yeah, the first but, one is Devil's, Devil's Tower in yep. uh, Wyoming. If you've seen Close Encounters of the Third Kind, the place where all the flying saucers land are, are attracted to, that's Devil's Tower, which is huge volcanic neck amazing basalt uh pillars so what you're saying if i if i hear you right ken is that really the antiquities act was actually part of the secret illuminati strategy to attract ufos in the 1970s jeb you have to quit giving away all the secrets stop it clearly clearly it must have been i love the fact that the second one is el moro which was an important point it was there's a uh, prehistoric pueblo up on the top of this giant cliff but the reason it was named a national monument is there are these amazing pieces of graffiti uh, in late 1500s, early 1600s. A lot of it's Spanish, Spanish uh-huh. folks traveling through the area. And what I love is the fact that they wrote their names and those yeah. were preserved. And what I love is, well, today, if you do that, you get arrested. But these, <laughs> these are of historical significance now yeah. as marking that these are the names of some of the very earliest white folks who travel through the American Southwest. Although the the name suggests not just white folks. Right. Oh, no, no, no. Exactly so, because in fact, there is there. The fact that the bottom of, of this large cliff, there's a spring that's uh, available about year round. And so, both native native people who live there and who were moving through the area and explorers and conquistadors and settlers also when they when they were traveling west they stopped at El Moro to water their horses and to collect um, fresh water because of this this spring so it's an, an important place and again there was Teddy Roosevelt using this law to recognize this is an important part of American history and American history doesn't begin in the fifteenth in the in the fifteenth century or sixteenth or seventeenth. It begins when the first people got here, and that's all part of the American story. And we should conserve that by setting these places aside. I need to point out one last thing before we move on. In nothing in the Antiquities Act has ever been interpreted as meaning that the government can confiscate private right. property. Right. And that's something else that you will see again and again yeah. about the most recent ones that, that that Obama has taken away land from any he hasn't taken away land from anybody. And I'd all like to these, talk that all of this land 
was already administered by the federal government. That's right. what the law applies to. Yeah. You can live in the oldest house in your town and you own it. The federal government can't not say, cannot say, oh, you got to move out. We're going right. to name this a national monument. That's not possible. Now, there um, are laws that are going to change that. So what we're going to do is, is, is the antiquities law was the federal law of the land on archaeology, the only one right. for 60 years. Now, various states, after they had really bad cases of looting, did start to put in. And by the way, for context, other nations around the world had laws against looting, had laws against exporting their artifacts, Egypt, for example, decades earlier than the United States. We were a latecomer on this, which is not a terrible surprise. We're a latecomer on a lot of things. Well, I mean, again, it gets to the to the valuing of, of Native American versus non-Native American, but we put this law in, it's a great law. But that was the law on the land for 60 years. Various states sort of copied it or modified it for their own purposes yeah. right. uh, after there were big looting examples. But what I'd like to talk, uh, talk about next is is there are subsequent laws that follow involving the U.S. and others, and we can talk about maybe some of the weirder places these go, that sure. did actually go somewhat more invasive in various senses to give greater protections. But the one that's under executive order is not those laws. It is right. just the one that yeah. you laid out. All right, well, let's, uh, let's just hit break real quick, and when we come back, we'll start talking about these other laws. Hey, podcast fans, check out the ARC 365 podcast at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash ARC 365. That's A-R-C-H 365 for your daily dose of archaeology. Each episode is less than 15 minutes long, and we have some great guests recording about awesome archaeology. We also try to throw in some definitions and basic archaeological information. So check out the 365 Days of Archaeology podcast only in 2017 at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash ARC 365 today. Find us also on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Google Music by typing ARC365 into the search. Now back to the show. And we are back, and we're going to polish off the Antiquities Act real quick, Ken. Yeah, just want to point out that the fourth place that was named a national monument, that's number four by Teddy Roosevelt, is the Petrified Forest in Arizona. And just to make the connection between some of the usual topics of, of this podcast, a couple of displays in the both entrances of the forest, and they have letters written by people who stole pieces of petrified wood. <laughs> they weren't supposed to do that. They're breaking the law by doing that. They are in violation of the Antiquities Act, who then send back those letters and send back the, the petrified wood because of horrible things that have happened to them because there's a curse on anyone who removes pieces of petrified wood. And Jeb, there's a book, right? Um, what the hell is the name of that book? It's the it's it's a, com a compilation of letters that yes. people have sent to the Park Service saying, oh dear God, please take back these pieces of petrified wood, remove the curse because of this horrible litany of things that's happened to them since they removed the petrified wood. So I'm not saying to anybody listening out there that if you go to a national monument and you take anything out of it, that something horrible will happen to you. I am. But, you know, it's just food for thought, right? I will totally go out there. All archaeology sites are cursed. Don't steal from well, me. As I, as, I tell, as I tell my students, and I don't know if we told this story, and I'm not going to tell it now, so we'll leave it as a hang, cliffhanger if I haven't, but uh, as I tell my students, as I've learned, if you, uh, if you steal archaeological artifacts, a vampire will eat your face with syphilis and there's an with actual syphilis. there's an actual story behind that but we won't tell that right now <laughs> i like that it's very specific with syphilis anyway so here we go back to it so we've got 1906 we have the antiquities act and you have all of these very very 
um, well-meaning park rangers who have who their job is now to make sure that these sites are not pillaged and they've got a problem they don't for the most part other than the really obvious ones they don't where are these sites what are these sites what kinds of things can people be pulling out of them that we should be protecting and so in 1935 the government passes the next law and that's the historic sites act the historic sites act actually called for inventorying significant sites on federal property. So in other words, so now we're going to send archaeologists out into the field and historians so they can put together an inventory that they can give to the park rangers to say, these are the places that are significant that you really should be concerned about uh, because of the Antiquities Act. This law, the Historic Sites Act, also established the National Register of Historic Places, essentially as an honor roll for sites of national significance. It starts as national significance. The law is rewritten later on to include sites of local significance. Say the oldest home in your town might not be nationally significant, but if it's significant in your state, we can put that on the National Register as well. The National Register, you go online, we'll give you a link, has its own website with a listing of all of the now thousands of sites that are recognized by the federal government. Yeah, Yeah. recognized by the federal government. I sit on the Historic Preservation Review Board in Connecticut. So when, when nominations have to go through us first, we then pass them along to the National Park Service. I have now, I have a I have a bullet list here of, of things that are significant for this may come from the also later the National Historic Preservation Act. Association with events that made important contributions to broad patterns of history, prehistory, or culture, association with important people in the past, possession of distinctive char- characteristics of a school of architecture, construction yep. method, or characteristics of high artistic value, or known to contain or likely to contain data important in history or prehistory. So that's that's a very broad definition, which is great. In Connecticut, the Mark Twain house, this beautiful home that he lived in in Hartford, is on the National Register of Historic Places. The site that I've excavated and talked about um, the lighthouse on the podcast, site? the lighthouse site, is on the National Register of Historic Places. Um, the Clovis site, one of the, the first site in which Clovis fluted points were defined in New Mexico, that's on the National Register of Historic Places. Civil War Battlefield, Reading. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah so Civil War Battlefield, uh, um, Revolutionary War Battlefields. So these places are all part of the fabric of American history with that with, written with a capital H. So we're talking about thousands tens of thousands of years of history and those places are it, it effectively though is an honor roll there if it's private property you get tax breaks if you don't want your if you own the oldest home in town and you refuse to allow the government to put you on that list the government can't do it right so these are things that are done with with local support local inform- people know about what's going on they participate in it what, what we find what i find on this historic site review board is that people come to us yes. hoping that their property will yeah. be put on the national register because they are proud of the fact that a famous person lived in their house they're proud of the fact that their house represents an important um a, 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 an important example of a specific period of architecture they're i remember proud seeing of plaques that. at gettysburg like you know you'd go to gettysburg and people would have a plaque on the houses that were yes, there at absolutely. the time of the battle Absolutely. That brought, I don't know if the feds pay for that, but you all here in, the, in New England, you will see lots of older homes, especially with that 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 bronze or brass plaque yes. indicating this is who this is why this is important. This is on the National Register of Historic Places. There are a few tax benefits that accrue to those folks. 
Um, because they want to make sure that you don't say, you know what, now that it's on the register, I'm going to rip off all the wooden siding right. and put up aluminum siding. They, they want to prevent that. So it's it's really significant that we kind have Kind of like the World Heritage list. list, which we've talked about. Exactly. It's our version of the World Heritage List. It's but what Ken's trying to point out is, despite the fact that once your house is on it, there are some restrictions that you now have to agree to. Right. It's completely voluntary. No one comes in and makes you go on the list. Wait, you're, saying it, that you're, you're saying if my house is put on the register, I won't be sent to a FEMA camp? No. You are allowed to live out your days in your house and pass it on to your ancestors, to your descendants. It, it doesn't... The federal government does not confiscate your property. No, it doesn't become federal property at the end of your death or at the event of your death. It stays in the The, family. The the internet lied to me once again. Oh, the internet. And the the idea here is that if there are people, say, who are really happy, and I see them all of the time on this board, they want their home recognized. They are proud of that. These are not the kind of folks who are going to now say, you know what? I'm kind of bored living in a house that's got all the problems of a house that's 300 years right. old or 250 years old. I'm going to change the the, uh, the 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 appearance of it. That those are folks who want to maintain the authenticity, and that's great. This is this is all done with the approval of the property owner. And can am I wrong? Can can't they eventually? I mean, like let's say they put them, they manage to get on the list, which by the way is not an easy process. It's not like you're just like, hey, I'm on the national register now. Um, but can't you, as the landowner, voluntarily take yourself off the list as well? Yeah, I mean, you could, again, you are not obliged to. Now, there are going to be problems if you've benefited through these tax write-offs because you have maintained the, 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 uh, the authenticity of the house and it's cost you more money. I don't know exactly what happens to you at that point. They don't, obviously, they don't want people taking advantage of these tax benefits and then thumbing their nose at the government saying, right. uh-huh, now that I've got all this, this, this I, I, I've got these tax benefits. I don't think I've ever encountered someone who's done that. I mean, and I don't think I've exactly. ever. Exactly, right. And then some of the sites that are on the National Register are on the World Heritage List. Yep. So Cahokia yep. is a National Register site. It's on the National, the, the, the World Heritage List as well. But Cahokia, public property. Is it not? Yes. It's considered yeah. a public oh, property? It's, it's owned by the state. Yes. Um, sidebar, there there has been an ongoing conversation about making Cahokia, which is a state park, into a national historical park. Exactly. Well, I'm, there, I'm, sure that will, I'm sure that will go fine. <laughs> um, Jeb, would you I be actually, surprised to know that I, it is not indeed going fine, that there is quite a bit of resistance to this? I spoke to William Eiseminger, who is the um, he's a, a colleague and a friend, and he is the He's one of the, the co the, the assistant manager of Cahokia. He's an archaeologist and an artist. And I mentioned it to him, and he just he just kind of nodded his head and said, "Yeah, there, there there's been some discussion about that." And I think at this point, probably it would be smart not to pursue that. Really? Because well, because do you actually think that we are in a, at a time well, of yeah, where point. our federal government? Would, would, would willingly take on the responsibility of another... I have done a really good job of just kind of creating a mental fugue about this whole thing that like, I can't <laughs> see through it until someone reminds me, Jeb, mm-hmm. that I have yes. to refer to someone as president. And then it's like, oh yeah, that's right. That's real. Yeah. I forget. So I, won't, the- I, won't bring, I won't bring up the nuclear biscuit. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> the, probably the law that I think that may be in more ways a little more invasive, a.k.a. a little more protective depending on your your perspective of such things, is the one that kind of builds on that and sort of gives it a bit more teeth in some ways. And that would be the National Historic Preservation Act, 
1966. And this one's actually pretty sure. damn important for American archaeology. Right. Yeah, I mean, we see, and the, the thing, when I teach this to my students, I say that, you know, each step of the way, depending on your political perspective, you could say the government is recognizing in incremental steps its increased responsibility towards preserving America's heritage. Or you could say the government is getting increasingly intrusive enforcing people to preserve their national heritage. I fall out on the, the, the former and not the latter. So now the government is recognizing, hey, you know what? If we've got a national register, all right? So we've got this register where we're telling people we are celebrating American heritage and American history. And we have an inventory of sites on federal property and sites that are on not on federal property, but in cases where federal money is going to have an impact on them. It sort of doesn't make any sense if, on the one hand, we encourage preservation, and on the other, we end up, through uh, coincidentally or unintentionally, destroying sites that we've just put on the National Register because that it just doesn't make any sense. Right. And that's when the federal government started becoming more proactive, saying, you know what? We actually need to hire archaeologists to conduct surveys to find out, and to, to hire archaeologists and historians, uh, to find out, well, wait a minute, these these actions that the federal government is taking uh, taking part in, the building roads, or building sewage treatment plants, or funding dam projects, that we may end up destroying sites that we've just made a big issue about elevating and celebrating their significance, their historical significance. You know what? We need to start... Funding archaeological surveys, and this is in this is also in the context of increased interest in ecological resources. Absolutely and, and right. It doesn't just hit archaeology, but it basically created right. an entire yeah. field of archaeology. So we're pretty happy about it. Which well, when, I, I will say, as some of my students pointed out when I was teaching them this last week, because I had talked about how you know works by Degas and works by Van Gogh go in like the white walled art history, history museums and art museums, and artworks by Native Americans and South Americans and Africans and East Asians often go in the Natural History Museum. Isn't that, fact, uh, isn't that interesting? Right? Yeah, and, and, you know, colonial and racist. And some people pointed out, gee, the fact that this stuff is protected under laws, which are also basically the same as those protecting bison and geysers. Is, yes. Is, it's good these things are protected, but that's an interesting, you know, point to point out. The, what, what Jeb just pointed out is an ongoing conversation within the field of archaeology because as much as I enjoy uh, the NHPA, the penalties for disobeying the NHPA or getting caught digging things up that you shouldn't be digging or looting or that kind of thing, it's very hard to prosecute under this law. Uh, we've talked about this on the Women in Archaeology podcast. It, it's hard to prosecute under this law. And it's hard to convict under this law. And so a lot of times, um, if you get caught doing something that you shouldn't be doing, they'll try to kind of sandwich it in with some other stuff that is more easily prosecuted. So people aren't, as much as this law does exist and it is something that you should be worried about and you really shouldn't go out and loot and do all the bad things that we talk about not doing on this show, um, the, the, the law needs more teeth is where we come in right. with this. And, right. and I think that's why... It, Ken and Jeb are getting at with the whole, you know, it's it's nice to have a law that protects these things, but at the same time, we're regulating a bunch of people, people and people's history into the same category as non-animate objects that are 
not viewed with as the same historical or cultural importance. Well, I'm going to briefly skip forwards one, then we kind of come, I think we should come back to the NHPA. The 1979 Archaeological Resources Protection Act kind of gave the Antiquities Act teeth. It made some of these things felonies, but then that actually seems to have made it less likely to bring charges in some cases because because I think people don't believe it's serious. They don't believe it's Maybe, serious, yeah. and it's and the reason they don't is because it's really, really hard to prove. I think you have to prove intent. You have to prove knowledge, and you have to prove intent. Well, see now, I but but lest we think that that the government does doesn't take some of these this stuff seriously. Um, is it a museum somewhere in Utah? Maybe it's Edge of the Cedars where they highlight in a display how uh, serious the government was about prosecuting this was a this was a really substantial looting operation oh, yeah. on federal property where the FBI was called in and the way they were able to identify the guy is they found a cigarette butt they brought it back to their lab and they the, his DNA was all over it and they went to his home and they had uh, you know a warrant to look through his house because of the DNA on the cigarette at the looted site and his house was filled with the objects that had come from this burial site. And he was arrested and fined a tremendous amount of money. All of the equipment he used, it's kind of like the, the, the law is applied. The way they, they, they deal with drug dealers, well, they'll, they'll take away their airplanes oh, yeah. and their vehicles. For, they, the same thing happened to this guy where his earth-moving equipment, his four-wheel drive vehicles were all confiscated by the federal government. And he spent time in jail. Yeah. But in this, in this case... The evidence was was very very clear. The problem with having extremely rigorous enforcement, which is great, but then having really punitive uh, penalties, is that people out there in the field are, are, may feel badly about a, a ranger, for example, may fe- feel really badly about arresting some kid who picked up a pot shirt yeah. when the penalties are so extreme. But but in, in most of the national monuments I've been to recently. They, there are little pamphlets they give out explaining exactly what the penalties are for taking a potsherd, what yeah. the penalties are for climbing on the wall of a ruin, what the penalties are for for drawing on the the, the a cliff face that has that has petroglyphs. And so, one of the reasons that they're doing that is because it comes back to the proving knowledge. Like we have to prove that you, as the pot hunter were aware that your actions were illegal. Like the person... Right. Right, and so that's what's with the pamphlets. But the other end of that is, is um, I mean, I'm not knocking the law. It has teeth if it, if it gets implied, or uh, put... Applied, yeah. Applied. But the problem, the problem isn't that they don't apply the law as much as we would like them to. Just because you get caught looting or whatever and they don't hit you with this does not mean that they won't come after you with other things they're serious about this stuff and there is a lot of other things you can get charged with besides this on top of it i had just just a a tiny little anecdote um a ranger at um uh, arches national monument was telling me the story there's this beautiful petroglyph panel um, and, uh, of this gigantic bear, really, really cool. And it, as part of Petroglyph, you have people, hunters, who are much smaller, much, much smaller than the bear, sh- shooting their arrows at it. And above the bear right now is this whole scratched out part of the cliff. And what the ranger, the ranger told me was they actually found two teenage boys vandalizing the Petroglyph. They arrested them. They brought them back to the ranger station. And since they were, they were um, uh, kids, they called the 
the parents. And one of the fathers arrived absolutely enraged that they would arrest his son. And his argument was there was no sign right near that petroglyph panel telling people there, that they were not allowed to vandalize the panel. Wow. Now, I, you know, my, rea my reaction to that is I've seen the Mona Lisa and I didn't see any sign at the Louvre saying, by, you know, it is against the law to bring to take out a Sharpie and put a mustache on the Mona Lisa. But you wonder about if that's the attitude people have, it's 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 difficult. But the best laws are are not going to be sufficient if the general attitude is, well, you know, oh, he, it's boys will be boys. And, you know, who cares? And that's why those pamphlets are such a brilliant idea, because they can be like, well, there's information about it. You just chose not to read it. Ignorance right. does not protect exactly. you from the law. Exactly. Exactly. You know. And another, yeah, and the other important law. This amazes me that the National Environmental Policy Act, which was passed in '69, I think it is, actually kind of puts a lot of this stuff together and includes archaeological and historical sites as the resources to be protected by this act. Now, everybody thinks of resources as being you know, natural resources. So we've got trees, we've got air, we got water, and sure, we want to protect that. But that act, signed by Richard Nixon, if I remember correctly, Jeb, was he a Republican? Richard Nixon, was he a yes, Republican? Yes, yes. Oh, Richard yeah, Nixon. Republican. He signed that act, and that act specifically, very specific language says that the federal government will fund no project. This is away and outside of the federal property. Will fund no project that results in the destruction of any site, historical or archaeological site, on the National Register, and it goes a little bit beyond that, or eligible for inclusion on the register. That that wording right there changed archaeology in the United States. Because now it meant every state, every municipality that gets either federal money or needs federal licensure, you know, needs needs permits and they want to build a dock uh, in, in, uh, in outside of New London, Connecticut, or they need federal money for a dam project or for a road project. The federal government at that point said, well, no, you before we give you that money, you guys have to make sure that there's no site on the National Register that's going to be negatively impacted by this project. But not just – that's easy. you got a list of sites. Okay, none of them are in that right-of-way. But you also need to determine, uh, are there any sites there that are eligible for the register? And you know what? You can't answer that question until you do an archaeological survey and look for sites. That absolutely changed archaeology. It was, I think, for my money, it was the most important putting together of various threads, all related to historic preservation and conservation, putting them all together and saying, you know what? The United States is going to now be very proactive in making sure that archaeological sites that are eligible for the register, historic sites eligible for the register, will be um, will be protected. That wording has been there have been attempts to withdraw that wording, uh, along with attempts to withdraw the wording that the federal government will fund no project that will result uh, in the extinction of any animal species um, or plant species. That that wording, they, there have been attempts by certain people to, to eliminate that wording from the National Environmental Policy Act for years. And that's another thing that, that concerns me. If they eliminate that wording, both in terms of its danger of, of species extinction, but also the danger posed in the destruction or negatively impacting 
sites that are eligible for the register. But, you know, it makes sense that the federal government is going to have a National Register of Historic Places, that the federal government is going to have as a policy recognition, recognizing, celebrating, and preserving important sites in American history. It doesn't make any sense if that, if out of their other with their other hand, they're funding projects that result in the destruction right. of those sites. Well, let's go to break real quick. And when we come back, we will we'll continue this discussion. Interested in archaeology? Want to hear from experts in the field about the latest discoveries and interpretations? Check out the Archaeology Show every other Saturday and let hosts Chris Webster and April Camp Whitaker take you deeper into the story. Check out the Archaeology Show at www.archpodnet.com forward slash archaeology and subscribe, rate, and comment on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and the Google Music Store. That's www.archpodnet.com forward slash archaeology. Now back to the show. And we are back. And Jeb, you wanted to tell us a little bit more about some other uh, some other laws and some other features that are out there protecting sites here in America. Well, there's one more about America we're going to talk about in a moment. But then there's, there's one that I'd, I'd like to come and revisit on another episode and maybe get some specialists in because it's what we do. Mm-hmm. And um, but uh, it's not a law. It's a it's a series of <clears throat> it's actually an agreement, an international agreement. Um, so we. Talked about the Antiquities Act, 1906. We talked about, um, which we're going to come back to. Talked about the uh, National Historic, uh, National Register of Historic Places, and then the uh, the law that is associated with that, the National Historic Preservation Act of 1966, that then sort of gives teeth and really creates the CRM regime that is does the majority of archaeology in the United States today. And to hear much more about that. Uh, there is the CRM podcast and other podcasts which focus on CRM, which we generally don't, uh, on the Archaeology Podcast Network. So you can go hear more about that there. But that is that's really the backbone of a lot of archaeology gets done in the United States today. <clears throat> we also briefly mentioned the uh, the 1979 Archaeological Resources Protection Act, which sort of gave teeth, felony teeth, to the um, to the Antiquities Act. Uh, one more I'd like to mention before we get to our last one and then we come back to the Antiquities Act is the UNESCO Convention. This is through the UN. This is more of a – basically countries that sign on starting in 1970 to make laws that will try to impede trafficking between nations because prior to um, this this law – Numbers of nations, I mean, Peru's got laws going back decades and decades. Egypt's got laws from the 19th century against exporting artifacts from their countries without permission. But, of course, the thing is, those are Egyptian laws or Peruvian laws or laws of various nations. Once you've got them out of one country, it doesn't apply jurisdiction-wise outside that country. The UNESCO Charter of 1970 was a way to get nations talking to each other and providing a framework to create treaties, or really the main thing you hear about are memoranda of understanding, where two countries will agree, based on their membership and their signatories of the UNESCO Charter, that they would work together. So if El Salvador, for example, I was the first, I worked there, but it's also the first nation the United States created a memorandum of understanding with in 19, in the 1980s, first around the Carasusia area that was being heavily looted during the Salvadoran Civil War, and then by 1995, the whole country. Um, saying, okay, if we see things that appear to be coming from El Salvador that appear to not be coming in with a permit, we will also make that fall under laws and we will uh, cooperate with you uh, on these issues. 
So a lot of things involving museums and a lot of European nations were not initial signatories because they had big, huge museums full of things. Mm -hmm. And there was a concern that they would be sent back. Now, the UNESCO charter, one of the things that was put in is that it does not uh, apply to things that entered into countries before 1970. And this gets very, very complicated. Like I said, I'd like to actually bring somebody in. But a lot of the sort of international stuff falls under under that and and to tie it into some of the weird stuff we often talk about that uh a lot of this deals with lack of information a lot of this deals with uh you know donna yates uh she's one of the people that runs uh traffickingculture.org which is a very useful resource i tell it to my students all the time um and one of her blogs is anonymous swiss collector because so many artifacts end up getting stories of oh where'd it come from well, it came from the collection of anonymous Swiss collector. When? Right before 1968. <laughs> um, right. Or sometimes artifacts, like in the Maya region, like, oh, where's this? Where's this artifact? Where's this chainsawed front of a stela? Where, you know, chainsawed off a monument? Where'd this come from? Uh, uh, somewhere in the Usamacinta region, maybe in Mexico, if the Guatemalans are asking. Maybe in Guatemala, if the Mexicans are asking. We don't know. Um, so th- there's a lot of a uh, myth making, and we've talked about how that those lacunae, these 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 missing parts of an artifact's history, in addition to getting sort of erased for sketchy reasons, often end up getting filled with curses and and strange legends and all of that. And we we've talked about that with our mummy's curse, but that that's in the 1970s. Although it really only starts to come into uh, into true being in the 1980s and 90s for the United States, at least. And that leads us to our, our, our last law, which comes on the books in the United States in, in 1990. And, and Ken, what is that? That's the NAGPRA, the Native Americans Repatriation Protection Act. and Repatriation Act. Right. So this is all about recognizing that, you know what, the, the mortal remains of Native Americans are not artifacts, that yeah. they are, in fact, the remains of human beings. And um, it, the feeling... That this law was based on the the demands, in fact, by a, a large number of Native Americans for the repatriation of the rem, the remains of their ancestors. All and over the got, United States, there were yes. laws against grave robbing and looting historical cemeteries and all that, but they generally did not cover what was usually considered archaeological and let's just basically say it Native American right. remains. When I was in grad school, and this is an apocryphal story, that there were a number of Native American um, uh, graduate students who wrote a grant to the NSF to excavate the remains at Arlington National Cemetery. Uh, <laughs> I and, heard about and, that. And, and apparently, apparently this was done, they did it straight face. They knew they would get turned down, but it was all about forensics. It was all about diet. It was all about uh, looking at... at um, uh, damage to bones as a result of repetitive stress injury. And of course they were turned down because it was illegal. And they said, well, yeah, that's the point. So why is it legal when it's our ancestors whose graves you are are, uh, digging up? I remember hearing about that when I was in school. That was actually pretty ballsy. And I'm... So, I mean, that's the point, that, that archaeologists, as a general rule, at least recently, have... Uh, the, the, their goals are valid in, in a scientific sense, but Native Native people have complained, and it's understandable. And most archaeologists these days recognize and respect that the, the concerns 
of native people about the excavation of people who are their ancestors. I mean, you will find archaeologists that do not like NAGPRA. Yeah, you will. I don't know if I would say minority, majority. I mean, my take is at this point, that's a minority and a majority of archaeologists who work in the United States view it as a good first solid step to collaboration with indigenous communities. Right. But that might also be like my bubble. I, I, I don't know if that is a really representative sample of, of how archaeologists feel. I know that when I was in school finishing up my bachelor degree, I know that I encountered a professor there who was not a NAGPRA fan. And right. that cost me a grade. But I mean, well, but you know, that was that was actually quite a while ago now. And, you know, I mean, I'm not defending this in any way, shape or form, but there are people that have objections to the law. Like some people think the law is too broad. A lot of people think the, the law isn't broad enough. I mean, NAGPRA is a great start. I will flat out say it. I it was already law, but I was it was law by the time I even started undergrad. And it was certainly law by the time I started grad school. And I'm not going to lie. I was sort of mixed feelings about it because I'm like, but there are things to be learned. Right. Right. And 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 the, the ones that really gave me mixed feelings, because the NAGPRA ties into recognized groups, which becomes a whole other. Right. That That's right. There's a can One, of worms who is recognized. And two, that many of those recognized groups are based on. The last few hundred years and disruption uh, of colonial forces and, and all sorts of other problems. And, and one of the cases that sort of broke this and got a lot of people going both ways was the ancient one, a.k.a. Kennewick Man. Right. Remains from Kennewick, Washington, I think found in 1996, wrote it out of a riverbank. And mm-hmm. this is this is a too long story for us to get into. But but the, the basically and, and again, kind of tying in some of the stuff we talk about um Early on, there were reconstructions and sort of forensic analysis, especially since early on it was not realized that this this uh, individual died some 9,000, 9,000-some years ago. Yeah, he was really uh, well-preserved for as old as he was. Yeah, making it one of the oldest sets of remains in, in the Americas. Yeah. And early on, there were there was a, a the sort of craniometric take, the sort of measuring of skulls that said, oh, this individual is identified, and this gets into a whole other problem with how forensic language is used, is Caucasoid. Right. But when they find out he's 9,000 plus years old, they're like, holy shit, what just happened? And this even led to, during the, the eventual legal fight between some archaeologists and some groups and the, uh, some indigenous groups and the, um, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, uh, at one point there were like Asatru Norse-worshipping folks right. who were like, oh, these are Northern European, yeah. you know, getting into, into hyperdiffusion, although that eventually fell out. But to be fair, that was only one group, and they are not a, not a majority in, in, the, in the Asatru community. You can and they were not with the archaeologists. Online, you can still find online people who swear that this is part of a government cover-up to, well, to, and they to did. disprove that white people were here. Oh, yeah. I mean, I wasn't – I don't think I was on your Salutrian episode, if I remember right. I could have been. I can't remember now. But, I mean, <laughs> at one point, you could see on political boards that salute the word Salutrian had become sort of a code word for, like, white, white nationalism. Yeah. Yeah. And it, at it one still point, is. <laughs> it still is. Google, at one point, did not recognize that. So if you put in Salutrian, oh, wow. you, you kept going to a blog that was full of that. And then at Ooh. some point, that stopped happening. At some point, the Google – uh, directory realized what was happening and it must have been complaints. I have they, really, they really mixed feelings about that Google policy. <laughs> really mixed feelings about yeah. that. But but so um I I will admit 
I was for a time like, but this is so old and we could learn so much and blah, 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 blah. And short, long story short, within the last couple of years, uh, genetic evidence, first off, there was a, a skeleton found in a cenote in Yucatan uh, in Mexico that right. was even older, that had many of the same facial features and was clearly genetically Native American. No questions, no Ainu, no Salutrian, no nothing. Mm-hmm. Which and then Kennewick. led, and then Kennewick yeah. was DNA and the same results. Same result, And right. Kennewick has since been, the ancient one as he's, as he's been renamed, mm-hmm. has since been repatriated right. and reburied with ceremony due to a special act of Congress. So even with NAGPRA, this still took a congressional act. Yeah. And that's where people come in and say that NAGPRA isn't broad enough. Um, I'm I'm kind of in the same camp that Jeb's in, where there's there's knowledge that we're going to lose. But to point out, to reiterate what Ken said, we're dealing with people. We're not dealing with objects. We're dealing with people that were living and breathing and deserve respect in death, like they had in life. So it's this weird place to be where it's like I want to study that because yeah think of all the things we could have learned from him but at the same time can we learn it somewhere else where it's Here's less the thing, though. so much of this is because archaeologists have not spoken to Native Americans right there is uh, a woman with a PhD in biological anthropology Dorothy Lippert she's a Choctaw Indian she's Native American and she wrote this amazing uh, piece of uh, amazing article in which she talks about how her ancestors can speak to her through, and this is her term, a voice made of bone. And she talks to other native people about how this is an opportunity for the ancient ones to tell us their stories. We have to analyze their bones. And not every Native American embraces that philosophy. No. But when you have a Native American, say, phrasing it that way, uh, here in Connecticut, the Mashantucka Pequot, who owned this tremendous casino, they were uh, doing expanding one of their buildings, and they encountered Mashantucket Pequot burials. They didn't stop the project. They had the burials excavated. They had detailed analysis for a, a short period of time. All of the artifacts were, were drawn and photographed, and then there was repatriation in a separate part of the reservation. But the, the, the deal there was it was Native Americans in control right. of the remains right. of their ancestors. That makes a huge difference. Yeah, and not every tribe views these things the same way. Right, exactly. And, and that came out with the, the Kennewick Man, which we really should do an entire episode on. And I yeah. think there, I think there also was, a, was a, 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 the skeleton of an infant or small child in Alaska, where, again, the Native people were consulted from the very beginning of this, that the, 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 the grave was going to be destroyed by natural po- processes. Right. And they worked with archaeologists and forensic anthropologists to analyze the, the, the skeleton, and then the repatriation occurred. So there is there is that possibility for people working together. Yeah, NACA right. is very case by case. I mean, there are certain situations right. where, like, I mean, if we had caught Kennewick Man soon enough, we would have had to have removed and, and repatriated him somewhere else, too, because he would have eroded out of that. I mean, that's where he came from, out of a riverbed. Nobody dug him up. Yeah, but then, not an archaeological excavation. Right, but then right. you have encounters like one, the, the, the site that Ken was talking about, and I know that there was a huge site in Florida not too long in the past now where... They just 
that actually came about because of uh, CRM work that was being done. They located this huge settlement site, a prehistoric settlement site. And I don't know if they ever actually were able to tie it back to any of the people. But again, that's one of the problems with NAGPRA is that, as Jeb said, we're only talking about recently recognized peoples and Part of the problems with Kennewick was he was so old, we couldn't figure out who he belonged to, and that opened it up to people making all kinds of claims for him. And it, well, it, and the funny thing there is, is that once the DNA was done, the best match was the people that live there yeah, right, until right now, there, yeah. right. which gets... And, and see, that for me is... So I said that I was in a place, and I'm not so much... I mean, I, I'm not trying to be funny when I say respect is actually not the most important... Respect for ancient people necessarily is not for me it's not like look i'd still love to do the science but where i've changed on this is but you know what that's not really my decision because right sure these are you know it gets into who gets to make those decisions and participation who owns and I think, the past yeah right and that i think gets us into I, I think the last part of the show today because that question in many ways reverberates through uh what's going on with the antiquities act Right. And also, as Ken pointed out, concerns about other aspects of these laws, because. All right. So this executive order that got signed by mm-hmm. the president recently basically is saying the internal the, the, the Department of the Interior needs to go back and review whether the law right. was overreached properly. Yeah, he, right, he's concerned about overreach. Right. Right. But the, the background here is that there has been, for a very long time, but certainly in, in the last couple of decades, this this big concern on the part of the relatively sparsely populated, as well as relatively non-urban, as well as much higher, as Ken pointed out, percentages of federal land ownership states mm-hmm. in the West, this... You know, this has often been a breeding ground for anti-federal feelings, and we've seen a lot of this. You know, the the takeover was it the the meth when you guys did this on the women in archaeology, right? The, yeah, they uh, talked about the, the federal land takeover. Yeah, and I can't either now that I won't need to. Um, but yeah, right. I'll, I'll link to that episode too. The girls or the ladies did a really good job addressing it, taking it apart, and and we revisited it later when they were taken into the federal courts and had the laws applied to them because they actually did get hit with some of the. Uh, Although um, they largely got off, right? Uh, yeah, actually, I think every one of them walked. You know, when a, when a bunch of white guys heavily armed take over a federal installation, that's what one expects. And you can send uh, your hate mail, too. Did, yeah. Did somebody get get, get shot trying to uh, um, evacuate the place? Is that the same one? I don't know. Yeah, one, one of them was killed. One of them yeah. was killed by were law they? enforcement. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yes. I guess I missed that. Uh, they were trying to run a blockade. Or they were, yeah, not they, on, they not on the actual right. Right, 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 right. They were living. Yeah. Um, so it's a, it's a whole mess. I mean, it didn't end up as like a Waco situation, but that was the, the concern. Uh, yeah. so it, would, it would end up being bloody. <clears throat> and there, and there, there was one death. Yeah. Uh, hey, here, it's important here to point out that, that Jeb's absolutely right. The, this, um, this revisiting of, this pati- of the, the uh, National Monuments that have been listed since 1996. So I was just kind of casually trolling and you know, on, uh, went on the internet and looked for other instances in the past where there has been some upwelling of resentment or anger. And I came across a court case, and this is, I'm reading from the the decision made by the United States Supreme Court. And this was an instance in which a a national monument was being questioned by local people and they wanted it removed. But this is 1920. 
Um, the court, this is from the court um, transcript. The defendants insist that the monument reserve should be disregarded on the ground that there was no authority for its creation. And their response of the, the Supreme Court justices, to this we cannot assent. The act under which the president proceeded empowered him to establish reserves embracing, and this is a quote from the Antiquities Act, objects of historic or scientific interest. This court case was about, wait for it, the Grand Canyon. So they actually had sued the federal, this, this mining company sued the federal government saying, you've got no right to name the Grand Canyon. You've overstepped. You've gone way beyond what you needed to do to preserve the Grand. So if they're questioning the Grand Canyon in 1920, should we be surprised that President Donald Trump is questioning Bears Ears and a number of other national monuments named in the last 20 years or so? This has been ongoing. It's, it's obviously, it's a really big issue now because we're not asking we're not they're not questioning one monument they're questioning it's over 40 of them ken please and, don't give please don't give steve bannon the idea of revisiting the grand canyon <laughs> you know, i think that one is so well established see and here's where here's where i want to be the voice of calm hopeful reason is and then, and then i'll be the and then i'm gonna be the voice yeah and then and then ken and jeb can can lead everyone off into the deep end which is where i actually reside um there's a lot of controversy over how much impact like i said at the beginning of the show how much impact this is actually going to have because there have only been two there's only been two times in history where the antiquities act has been limited in its scope and it's a very broad act and it was written that way for a reason and there's only been two times where it has been dialed back and they're very specific one of them only applies to alaska and the other one i think only applies to i want to say montana but i could be wrong any of the other ones it's kind of by presidential decree that's what the law says yeah. right and when it has the the other times that the law has been challenged or a presidential's or sorry, a president's choice of monuments has been challenged, Congress almost unanimously has backed the president's purview here. So, and even with this executive order that has gone through, and even with this little whatever 45-day review process that who knows what's going to happen with it, the chances of them actually changing anything are very, very slim and it's not just because of politics. It's just historical precedent says that this is probably not going to occur. It would just simply be too much law to change in order to do so. Now, that's that's my rational. Everybody, right. nobody freak well, out yet, but by all means, be ready to freak out. Ken, go take it from there. Well, the thing I would say about that, I'll just jump right in on that. The thing I would say is, you, as you pointed out, there are a number of executive orders that looked like they were going everywhere, and then they went nowhere. On right. the other hand, you're you're citing political in Congress. Right. We, we have a more polarized, politically polarized society than we've had. Definitely in the last 50 years, and I personally would suggest almost the last 100. Oh, I would completely agree with you there. I mean, I, I, I want to be at rational. At least, we really need to be vigilant yes, about this. Yes, and yes, yes. We need to write our congresspeople. Yes, yes. We need to make signs and put bumper stickers on that we are not going to stand for this, that, th that this is the law allows our presidents to name these national monuments um, and that we need to support their continued existence. 
Which leads to my paranoia. Are you ready for my paranoia? I am completely ready for this guy. Right. The fact the fact that it's not my paranoia. I was gonna say this is refreshing. This is, this is it's coming from Penn. <laughs> I went and looked at the list of the, the the sites that are in theory endangered now because of this executive order, and it's the last twenty years since nineteen sixteen. And there are a little depending on how you count them, it's a little more than forty. I am going to cherry pick now. I'm going to list the names and briefly describe eight. So that's a, a nice, healthy percentage, a little less than 20% of the sites that are going to be revisited. Uh, site, the first one, the, Mini, the Minidoka Internment Camp. So it's a national monument that is focused on the internment of Japanese American citizens during World War II. The African Burial Ground. This is a burial ground in the southern part of Manhattan where there were 300, more than 300 or 400, I believe, uh, remains of Africans, African captives, enslaved people living in southern Manhattan in the 16 and 1700s. The Cesar Chavez National Monument, dedicated to farm workers, people of Mexican descent. The Harriet Tubman Underground Railroad site. The Charles Young Buffalo Soldiers, the Buffalo Soldiers with uh, African-American soldiers who served during the Civil War. The Pullman National Monument, which is dedicated to a workers' community that had a heavy component of African-Americans. The Belmont Paul Women's Equity National Monument. The Stonewall National Monument that, that's, that recognizes and memorializes the Stonewall Riots. Where Basically gay, identified as the beginning of the gay rights movement in the United right. States. Right. So is it coincidental that uh, that a 20% of the monuments that are going to be revisited focus on uh, in, uh, oppressed people, marginalized people, well, people let whose me, experiences were Yes. Ken, you can take that one step further. I mean, we're looking at Bears Ears. Bears Ears is considered a religious site for a lot, for the, the tribes out there. A lot of the sites that you didn't mention that are on the list and no less important are sites that are, are considered sacred ground by Native American tribes. So, no, it's not a coincidence that these sites are being targeted, well, at least I in my will, opinion. I will, I will provide two different devil's advocates. One that's like why this is not a political strategy. And the other, why it may well be a political strategy, but from that perspective, it's not a political strategy might simply be, well, look, we had to pick a specific, you know, there may be a very legal reason why it has to be 1996, you know, it, right. it versus, versus all of them. It may be something like that. The alternative one from sort of a, a different, from, from a political perspective that I don't think anybody on this show frankly shares would be. You know, people talk about this being an abuse. Now, Ken, I'm, I'm going to get to my point, but Ken, basically, before we before we, we finish, you said, you know, you wanted to kind of claim, you wanted to get rid of any myths about this. You hear people talking about this being a land grab, except you can't, I mean, it's federal lands. Right, like these, exactly. these are federal lands. <clears throat> and people have talked about, oh, well, we want to use these lands for these things. We can't even graze on them. Well, actually, that's not the case with, for example, Bears Ears. You can graze there. What you can't Absolutely. do is you can't do, like, natural gas or, right. or, or, or mining which is what they're trying to not have at the site, hence right. the Antiquities Act. One, so, so first of all, there's that myth, the idea that it's, a, it's taking people's lands. Are, are there any other myths uh, that we wanted to debunk before I get to sort of what might be the other kind of explanation for this that is actually a little more open-faced? Well, yeah, of well, one, of the, one of the myths and one of the things that's been, been uh, spoken about by the people who opposed Bears Ears is they were telling Native Americans that they would not be allowed 
to go on the into the National Monument and collect their traditional medicinal herbs or collect firewood. And the, the Park Service has come out with a listing of all the things that people have said you won't be able to do and has expressly said, no, these are not, these are myths. This is not true. Right. That every one of these, that, that Native Americans can continue exactly to use that land, their sacred land, exactly as they always have. Well, and one of the other myths that was that's they're trying to push is with the Bears Ears, at least, is that this wasn't wanted and the majority of people were against it and nobody asked them to come and stick their nose into it. And that's entirely not true. I mean, it is like categorically not true. Like that's what you call a lie. Yeah, absolutely. a lie. It's a complete lie. People were very supportive. I think this is one of the most popular or at the time, I think it had one of the largest popular supports to become a national monument of any of them in the past that we know of so far. The the thing that's bizarre is that Native Native folks have been talking about making this a national monument for 80 years. Exactly. They petitioned Obama to do this. Right. And when, when, when the governor of Utah and Orrin Hatch and Mike Lee say there was no public exactly. um, participation, a year before it was named, there was a, a large public hearing. 1,500 people showed up. Those people who said there was no public uh, announcement, they were there. The governor was there. Hatch was yeah. there. Lee was there. Yeah. The, what they're pissed about is that the government didn't go along with what they wanted. Yeah. Not that well, they weren't told about. And this gets to, and I think this gets to, in, in many ways, I think my my final thought, which is the other, and I, I don't know if I use the word devil's advocate, but I think this is, this is I, I think to some degree the motivation, you know, Ken, you're like, it's a paranoid thing. I, I don't disagree, but I, I would say it's, it's, their response would be, this was meant to do historical this, historical that, and now it's being used. Like, listen to all the ones you mentioned off, right. you know, the African yeah. burial ground, and this, and that, and that. You know, I don't think that they're, tar- I mean, it's the last 20 years. They're not targeting specific things. What they're targeting, and they would maybe perhaps say is, oh, well, this law is now being used to, like, be politically correct. I mean, it is not an exaggeration or a hidden message to say this uh, this attack against supposed political correctness was a major part of the Trump campaign. It's been a major part of right-wing political speech for quite a long time. And it's become – it was one of the things that people heavily talked about in the 2016 election that, you know, oh, all this this liberal speech and supposed liberal universities and blah, blah, blah. And they would say, perhaps, that, oh, well, this law is now being used to protect African burial grounds and buffalo soldiers and that, to which we might say, yes, yes, (laughs) it is, because that is part of our history and I'm sorry right. they didn't teach you that in the 1950s or 60s, but <laughs> yeah. it is part of our history. I'm sorry and that Texas whitewashed their textbooks on history for yeah. you, but there are people I mean, of other color who live in this country. And it is now being – it is now also being recognized. And you see right. this, for example, in historical archaeology in the United States. If you go look at historical archaeology in the United States today, a hell of a lot of it focuses on – especially those who didn't leave historical records, and that would be – people who had been enslaved mm-hmm. and that right. would be working class people of, of various racial uh, identities in urban areas and rural areas. And mm-hmm. it would be people that was not where historical archaeology was. There was historical archaeology in the fifties and sixties and it was largely, and I'm stereotyping, but basically digging up James Madison's teacups right. and plantations. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then it shifted because the science frankly said, 
you know what? There's actually more to be learned from this other way. Mm-hmm. And and I think to some degree, it's actually reflecting the changing priorities of the larger United States, as well as those who are who are looking at the history and the archaeology. Yeah. And I would not look at it as yeah, I, I, I suspect, frankly, that a lot of this is people who want to mine and do economic things. But there's also just this general idea of, well, we don't like what's been happening the last not even eight years, but the last 20 or 30 and depending on who it is, you could keep rolling that number all the way back to 100 plus. I think there is, I think, I think you're hitting the nail on the head. I think there is a great deal of what they like to call identity politics going on here. And I think the identity that is being challenged is the idea that America is a white country. And I'm really sorry if that offends any of our listeners, but what we're, or what I am hearing and what I am seeing just based on the conversations we have on this podcast and the comments that I get via email, which, by the way, you can reach us at archiefantasies at gmail.com. People who don't don't feel like they should be ashamed of their white heritage. And I'm not saying that you should be. I'm just saying that there is more heritage in America than just the white narrative. There are peoples who have been in this country and I'm not just talking about Native Americans who were obviously here before all of us but you know we brought over other culture groups with us other culture groups found their way here without us us being white people so it's it's this apparent loss of a white history that people believe is happening that they feel threatened by when what they don't understand is I mean these are Eight sites, Ken wrote off eight sites in the entire country that are dedicated to non-white, non-straight people. I'm really not seeing why anyone should be threatened by that. There's, there's, my understanding is that, for example, in Germany, there's um, resistance to memorializing concentration camps. Right. And listen, this was a part of our history. It's not our proudest moment by any means. But it's something that we want to at least we want to not not celebrate, but to preserve so that we know our the entirety of our history. Exactly. And maybe there is some of that that like, why do we want why do we want to make national monuments out of Japanese internment camps? That's something we'd rather not think about. Why do we make national why do we want to make a national monument out of a, a place where people who were who were in, who were kidnapped and brought here and died uh, after suffering? Under very harsh conditions, it, they were enslaved. Why do we want to celebrate? Let's forget about that. And and maybe it's the case that it's really only in the last twenty years that we've begun to con- to more um, vocally confront those elements of our history, and and that's why those national monuments that that I listed are from the last twenty years. Um, but those are the ones that are going to be hurt the the most. By this this reassessment. By the way, uh, African burial ground has a wonderful museum there, there in the southern part of Manhattan, um, and it's it's a it's a wonderful place to learn a part of our history that you don't learn in school that you right. haven't been exposed to before. And that's that's the point of so many of these places that we have this incredibly rich, textured, and kind of a- ambiguous history, and, but it's all part of our story, the American story. And it's these are important places to to at least to preserve so that we never forget those stories. We well, my final those are part of it. My final thought 
is what you just described, the history you don't learn elsewhere. That's what archaeology is. Right. I mean, exactly. we, we literally dig under rocks to f- discover, I mean, people have problems with that word, but to discover things that are surprising that we didn't know. That is, at its best and core, what archaeology does. And that doesn't necessarily make people happy. In fact, it often makes people unhappy. Or uncomfortable, um, yeah. Yeah, all the time, which is, frankly, one of the big themes of our show. As we said, we're always pissing somebody off with this stuff. <laughs> but, but yeah, this, this is a, a very old law that Americans have absolutely embraced. And if you ask people, do they want monuments and parks preserved, there's usually a very strong yes. But if you then frame it in other terms of like, overreach and land grabs and it's being misused by liberal snowflake right. liberally politically correct blah 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 well here we are right well guys thank you very much i think this has been a very informative podcast on our end um and if anyone has further questions about laws that affect archaeology or you just want to send us you know your angry thoughts, because I'm sure we've ticked right. somebody off. <laughs> well, my my response is always, if you're going to send us an angry email about us getting political, yeah. you know what? Suck it. Well, There's, there are political issues that 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 involve historic preservation and protection of the archaeological and historical record, and we can't we can't tiptoe around that. We can't avoid that. Um, you can disagree with us, that's fine, but don't tell us not to do it. Yeah, well, I mean, and you know, if they're taking their time and sending Sarah an angry email versus, say, <laughs> affecting actual change in a way we may not be happy with, that's oh a no. Good thing. <laughs> oh no. And if you want to send that angry email, you can send it to archiefantasies at gmail.com. All right, guys, we, we need to wrap up, and I really appreciate you, both of you, bringing your knowledge base to the show today. It's been very informative, and I hope somebody, I hope you guys took something away from it. I hope our listeners took something away from this, uh, even if it made you mad. So thank you guys much. Support Bears Ears. Raise your trials as one will call. No way down to a dinosaur. Thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed it. Our music was provided by Archaeosuit Productions. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher and share us wherever you use social media. You can contact us with your questions, comments, or angry email at archiefantasies at gmail.com. You can follow the podcast at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash archiefantasies. You can follow the blog at www.archiefantasies.com and get updates on Tumblr and Twitter at Archiefantasies. You can also look for us on Facebook. If you're looking for the show notes for this episode, go to the podcast website at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash Archiefantasies. Thanks again for listening. No, we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. We don't do dinosaurs. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.